So good morning. Thank you to the leadership for asking us to talk this morning. Uh, it's lovely to be back. We continue our summer series on different life stages and the challenges and joys that they bring. Some of you will know us, but many of you won't. Uh, so I wanted to share a little bit about us. James and I joined Riverside Church in 2000 after marrying, moving to Birmingham and starting new jobs all within 10 days. We live, uh, we've lived in Bourneville for 15 years with our two children and moved to the Bourneville Church site two and a half years ago. Some time ago, as 40-somethings, we'd have comfortably fitted within the bracket of middle age. However, though, now I'm not so sure. Is this wishful thinking or because I can't accept the progression of time? Or is it because the boundaries between young, middle-aged and older are more blurred than ever? As James and I very nearly definitely reach middle age, we found ourselves happy with each other, happy in our careers, and happy to be continuing along the exciting and sometimes slightly daunting prospect of raising teenagers. Our children are 12 and 14, and as with every phase of parenting, it has its great joys and challenges. My friend with younger children asked me the other day whether, becoming a, whether being a parent becomes easier. I replied that I didn't think it did, but that it became different. And the physical exhaustion and sleep deprivation is less. However, the emotional investment, support and the time they need is somehow greater. As children get older and move through teenage years into adulthood, the decisions they make grow in importance and become life-changing. And we certainly thank God every day that he's with us. I decided to try and gain a bit more of an insight into the priorities and the pressures on our teenagers today and carried out a short survey on eight young people. They were guaranteed both anonymity and a bar of their favourite chocolate. <laughs> I found their responses to my questions both honest and interesting and I've grouped some of the themes running through. Five out of the eight teenagers chose listening to me as the most important of the priorities I gave them, which they looked to their parents for. Five out of the eight picked spending money on me as the least important priority. Six out of eight teenagers reported that the primary pressure they felt in their lives was related to academic work. And meeting their parents' expectations was also high up on the list of pressures for many of the young people. In the main, social media, peer pressure and fitting in were at the lower end of pressures. I asked them the following question and have highlighted some of the responses. What do your parents do to make you feel loved, supported and understood? And I had some lovely responses. They give me a lot of time, which makes me feel like I am their priority. They're always ready to talk and always make time for me. They're willing to stand up for me. They always listen to me and always help me in every way possible. And they support me in my sport. These words reminded me that regardless of our age, relationships with others remain paramount. And the need for time spent together and time communicating, both listening and talking within the family is so very important. For parents and young people to know that they have support and prayer through these years from extended family and friends is invaluable. Health professionals, teachers, youth workers and all those who come into contact with teenagers through work 
have a huge role to play, encouraging and equipping young people as they approach adulthood. James has entitled his talk, The Comfort Seekers Meet a Troublemaker, Lessons from the Story of Samson. Before he comes to talk, I'll read two passages from Judges. Judges 13, verses 1 to 5. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you will conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And then Judges 15, verses 9 to 20. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The men of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to us. And they said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came towards him shouting, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath-Lehi. Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die for thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakori, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Okay, thank you, Sarah. Okay, as Andy said, the um, passage... Sorry, the series we're doing at the moment is about different life stages and, uh, uh, and how particular biblical characters might, might relate to those life stages. Um, with us, we are the 40-somethings. Uh, we have an identity problem. They didn't know what to call us 
Those of us who were born between 1964 and 1980, so they called us Generation X. There's not many of us. We're sandwiched between two larger cohorts, the baby boomers and their offspring, the, the mini-boom, the children of the baby boomers that they call the millennials. And we've, we've paid a price for being born in those years. Uh, the baby boomers, they indulged themselves in the summer of love. We had the winter of discontent. <laughs> they had Beatlemania. We had Kajagoogoo. <laughs> they were bold and brash. We were just too shy. <laughs> they, en they enjoyed the excesses of youth culture, but they still had the stability of their parents and the more conventional society. We were the latchkey generation. We were the first to grow up with both parents working, left to fend for ourselves. We were also called the MTV generation. We were characterised as slackers, cynical and disaffected, though we gave the world grunge and hip-hop. Uh, not that I was particularly uh, involved in those two movements. <laughs> <laughs> we were also called Thatcher's children, with our childhoods disrupted by endless teacher strikes through the 1980s. And in our 20s, we became aimless and unfocused, cynical and disaffected, so they say. But somehow, by the time we reached our 30s, we were described as independent, resourceful, self-managing and adaptable. Maybe that was the result of being a latchkey generation. Researchers have found that we're now happier than other age groups. Unlike the baby boomers, they say that we don't seek the limelight, we just quietly do our thing. We're comfortable with our work, we're comfortable with our lifestyles, we're comfortable with our work-life balance. We are the generation that is comfortable. Now, of course, I generalise. Uh, not everybody in, our, in my peer group is comfortable. Not everybody is happy in their work. But that's what the social commentators say, to, to broadly generalise. Turning to today's Bible passage, we're looking at a nation that had become comfortable and wanted to live in harmony with its neighbours. But this harmony, this comfort was not a good thing. So there came a rebellious youth who set out to disturb the comfortable compromise. To turn the generations on their head, we might say that the comfortable middle-aged Generation X was disturbed by an upstart baby boomer. Or to make it more local, we could say that the comfortable people of Bourneville were disturbed by the wild child of Moseley. <laughs> I did live in Moseley for a while, so I can speak uh, with a foot in both camps. I should also actually say that I don't particularly identify with Samson. Hair too short. Uh, I don't often go around beating people up. Sarah certainly doesn't identify with Delilah or any of the other women in Samson's life. Uh, <laughs> except maybe his mother. His mother comes out of the story quite well, actually. So. But from the passage we read, read today, there's three things we can learn. The first thing we can learn is that the people of Israel were called to be different. They were to be a nation set apart. They were no different to other people of their time, indeed to people of all and every time. But God decided that through them, he would bring salvation to the whole world. They were to demonstrate the righteousness of his justice and the goodness of his grace. But by the time, by the time we get to Judges 15 we find that again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. 
Now, the Philistines were smart. Other nations like the Midianites and the Ammonites, they had opposed the Israelites through military force and cruelty. But this just roused and united the Israelites in opposition. In contrast, the Philistines were subtle. They didn't threaten from the outside. They enticed the Israelites in. They absorbed them. They assimilated them. They tied them in economically and threw into marriage. And this proved a far more serious threat to the distinctiveness of Israel and to their survival as a nation. The Israelites hadn't obeyed everything in the law. They had associated with other nations. They had intermarried. They were comfortable. They got on with their lives. They got on with their neighbours. They discovered the joys and comforts of a compromised middle age. But God doesn't leave his people in middle age compromised comfort. Instead, we find that the Lord was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, as it says in Judges. So to the people of Israel, he sent a man called to be set apart from birth, within a nation set apart. And the promise of Samson's birth is almost uncanny in the way it seems to mirror the promises of Jesus' birth. His mother was visited by an angel who gave the news. His father needed to be convinced, and that required the angel to come again. Even these days, many men still, trust, still fail to trust in the power of a woman's intuition, or still fail to believe a woman's word. A lesson for us all. A great promise was made. Like Jesus, Samson was to be the deliverer of his people, though his work of deliverance was to be local and time-specific rather than universal and eternal. But it depended on Samson being set apart as a Nazarite. His parents seemed to do everything right. But things didn't go well. The child set apart from birth became a wayward adolescent and a troubled young man. He was driven by his feelings and emotions, the very caricature of a troublesome teenager. In fact, it, it, seems, it seemed quite unfair, actually, to, uh, on our teenagers to say that Samson was like him, like them. But you get the point. Samson didn't properly grow up. He didn't learn to manage himself. He broke all the aspects of his covenant and he went against all that his parents had told him. He seemed determined to associate with the Philistines and intermarry with them. He was a womanizer, he was boastful, he was a braggart. He even failed to turn up to his wedding because he'd overdone it at the stag do. He went around beating people up and setting fire to their crops just to get revenge. And in today's story, you hear what the Philistines say. The Philistines said, we just did to him what he did to us. And Samson says almost the same thing. Well, I did to them what they did to me. He just wanted revenge. He didn't withstand the pressure of peers. He didn't avoid the temptations of alcohol abuse and loose women. He didn't think through the consequences of his actions. So we call our teenagers to be different for good reason. Look at the mess that Samson made as a young man. But even though Samson forgot his covenant with God, God didn't forget his covenant with the people of Israel. God transcended the sins and weaknesses of his people. He used the waywardness of Samson to challenge the comfortable compromise of the Israelites. Samson lived carelessly and acted arrogantly, but God still used him to serve his purposes. Perhaps the ultimate test for any parent, particularly parents of teenagers, is to believe that God is working out his purposes, even when everything suggests that is not the case. And for those of us who are approaching middle-aged, or who are middle-aged, what does it mean to be different? Do we not enjoy, do we not seek the comforts of a settled existence? There is a lot to be said for it. Children, 
generally best raised in a stable and secure environment. And the backbone of many businesses and public services are the people that work loyally for years. Communities are more peaceful and flourishing when people are rooted. And churches rely on those who stay in the same place and serve loyally day in, day out for years. Of course, there are many middle-aged people still struggling with harmful behaviours. And we hear in the, in the news about how women of our generation particularly can have a drink problem. It's often hidden, it's often at home. It's not bold and brash in the way that it is with, with many younger people. With men, middle-aged, the temptations, downfalls of, inter- of the internet, pornography, so easily accessible. The problems of personal debt. But for many people in middle age, they don't actively fall into a life of debauchery. Does that make us very different from those outside the church? Of course, all around us, in Bourneville, in Moseley, in Kings Heath, many, many people live upstanding, decent lives, whether they go to church or not. They work hard, they pay their taxes, they remain loyal to their spouses or their partners, they bring up their children well, they raise money for charity, they serve in the community. But in our settled lives, there's the danger of stability turning into compromise. We can lose our edge. We don't take new risks. We don't set new goals. We don't set, seek new horizons. We don't dream. What price do we pay for our comfort? How do we avoid the thorns and traps of com- compromise middle age? What, what does it mean to be different? Our compromises often come from our false idols. The difficulty is often that our false idols, the things that we put before God, are usually things that are inherently good. The risk is that we prioritise good things over God. Financial security, perhaps. Who wouldn't want that? Particularly in this day and age when it seems so elusive. An easy life, peace of mind, reputation, a sense of achievement, all good things. But to give these things up for Christ is truly sacrificial. Many people give up a harmful, a self-destructive lifestyle if they can, even without a Christian faith. Everybody loves the story of a drug addict who found something in their lives, whether it was Christian faith or something, anything else, and they gave up. They were released from the power of addiction. Who wouldn't like those stories? Your friends, neighbours, everybody would like, loves the story of somebody who turned their life around. But will we sacrifice the good things? Will we have a testimony about how we gave up a false idol that was a good thing, not just a harmful, destructive lifestyle? That would be the hallmark of a people that are truly different. The second thing we learn from Samson is that it's not about the hair. And for those of us who were the, the mullet generation, thank goodness, Samson was a Nazarite, which meant consecrated or separated. The requirements of the Nazarites included not drinking wine, not, not eating anything unclean, not touching dead bodies, and having no razor used on his head. John the Baptist may also have been a Nazarite. But the crucial point about the uncut hair was not that, ju- that it was a sign of the... Sorry. The crucial thing about the hair was that it was just a sign of the covenant with God. It wasn't the substance In itself, it was nothing more than symbolic or ornamental. But the Philistines didn't get this. 
They knew nothing of a God with whom they could actually have a relationship. Instead, the gods were to be assuaged, paid off, manipulated even, by doing certain acts or keeping certain rules. They had no idea where Samson's strength came from. So they suspected it came from specific rites, special clothes, a magic formula. But ultimately, Samson's strength didn't come from his uncut hair. Now, I'm sure you've you've seen pictures of Samson. Typically, they're a bit like that. His hair is just starting to grow there after it had been cut off. You probably know the story. But there he is, muscular, physically strong. But he may not have looked like that. Nobody knew where his strength came from. It wasn't obvious. He quite easily could have just looked like that. (laughs) Because his strength came from the Lord. Three times we read that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. One time in Samson's 13, sorry, in Judges 13, (laughs) um, he killed a lion. He was just walking down the road and a lion came. I mean, wouldn't that be great if he lived somewhere? where there was lions. If you went down Cannon Hill Park and there was lions that just lazing around, enjoying the sun. But it doesn't say his long hair made him powerful. Ironically and troublingly, it seems that the Spirit of the Lord came on him even when his intentions weren't pure. He went out and beat up 30 Philistine men and stripped them naked just out of revenge, just because of his wounded pride. So it wasn't just his long hair It was the spirit of the Lord coming on him, even when he was just out for revenge. I'm not quite sure how that works, but it did. Maybe you know the the story of Samson and Delilah in in the next chapter that that we didn't read. How this Philistine woman lured Samson into revealing the source of his strength. Samson initially fobbed her off three times with false explanations about the strength of his, the source of the strength of his hair. Until eventually through manipulation, through playing on his sexual weakness, she got the answer out of him and his hair was cut. And with his hair cut, Samson did lose his strength. And although the cutting of his hair was the moment that he lost his strength, ultimately it wasn't the reason that he lost his strength. He lost his strength, as it says, when the Lord left him. He lost his strength when the Lord left him. Samson had broken every vow of his covenant He had separated himself from God. He had broken the relationship. So the cutting of his hair was just the final severance of that relationship. It was the last straw, not the whole thing. Now what's our hair? What are the outward displays of religious observance by which we hope to gain strength and to gain God's favour? Is it church going? Is it about reading the Bible in a year? Is it about giving tithes and offerings? Of course, these are good things. We should do them. But by themselves, they don't make us the objects of God's favour. The risk is we become so concerned with the outward symbols of our faith that we neglect the substance of the relationship. We might have a particular way of doing church that we expect others to respect, to uphold and to buy into. And those those ways of doing church can can be precious, can be useful, they can be important. When I was growing up in the Anglican church, it was expected that you would pray on your knees. It wasn't expected that you'd raise your hands in worship. Because nowadays, it seems to be the opposite. And of course, getting down on your knees to pray or raising your hands in worship can be a phys- physical manifestation of an inner spiritual reality, or at least of a genuine emotion. 
they are good things. But in and of themselves, they prove nothing. They don't gain us God's favour. And do we expect our children and teenagers to do, to do the same? Do we demand that they have the hair whilst forgetting the, the covenant? Do we demand that they do church in a particular way? I mean, neglect the relationship with God. Maybe it's just my impression, but it does seem that many of my peer group who were brought up in the church have reject, rejected church in all its ways. But they've tragically rejected the gospel that they rarely or never heard. They've rejected the symbols of the gospel without knowing the substance, without knowing their relationship with God. As the author C.S. Lewis wrote, remember how much religious education has exactly the opposite effect to that which was intended. How many hard atheists come from pious homes? It's a reaction against the symbol rather than the substance. I'm sure those with greater experience of raising teenagers can help us here, but my own feeling is that with teenagers, the key is believing in God and belonging to church. It's not so much the outward signs of religious observance or even good behaviour, though they are important and desirable. But if the teenagers, if anybody, chooses to belong and believe, surely we can live with whatever hair they have. I once overheard a very bizarre conversation between three, three Christian men. One a younger man, maybe 20-ish, with a ponytail, and two older men, maybe in their 30s. I was just staggered. The two older men, I don't think they knew this younger man, were admonishing, admonishing him for his ponytail. They said, a Christian man shouldn't have long hair. Now, I must believe, I must confess, I didn't like the guy's hair, okay? <laughs> but I didn't hold it against him. But I was just staggered. They were saying, you should not have this long hair. It makes you look like a woman. And the guy said, well, you look, do I look like a woman? And they said, well, from behind, we might approach you and think you're a woman. And I'm not quite sure where they were going with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about the hair. For all of us, we can know that power comes from relationship with God, not from the hair. The Spirit of the Lord empowered Samson, but it didn't dwell in him. Following Pentecost, that power is now accessible to us all in a way that it wasn't to Samson. Long hair, short hair, or no hair, we can have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and we can know the strength that comes from the Lord. We can encourage our teenagers to know it from a vibrant, intimate relationship with Christ. Our third thing we can learn from the passage today is that we should tame not, that ye be not tamed. Through the life of Samson, we see an upward spiral of violence between him and the Philistines. And as we heard in the reading, the Philistines send hundreds, if not thousands of men to find Samson and get their revenge. And fearing the Philistines that rule over them, and fearing the loss of their comfortable, compromised lifestyle, the Israelites hand over their potential deliverer to the enemy. They show no embarrassment that their land was occupied by the enemies of the Lord. They ignore the evidence that the Lord was with Samson. He'd shown what he could do when empowered by the Spirit of the Lord. He could have saved them. He could have delivered them. He went on to have a victory over a thousand Philistine men there and then. It nearly killed him. He was on the point of death, but at the point of death, God provides a miraculous life-giving spring of water, and Samson is revived. 
But even then, the Israelites don't join in. They don't help him. They don't exploit his victory. We read, read in verse 20 that Samson then led Israelites, sorry, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. He led them for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. It remained a partial compromise victory. And Samson ruled over a comfortable compromised people. The parallels between Samson and Jesus are imperfect and they shouldn't be taken too far. He was a pale shadow of Christ. He had the wrong motives and he got so much wrong. But the parallels do exist. He was a man set apart at birth to be the deliverer of God's people. He was handed over by those people to their enemies. Both were fighters, albeit in very different ways. Both were empowered by the Spirit. They both brought about a great victory by the sacrifice of their lives. Are we like the Israelites? Do we prefer the comfort of our Philistine rulers? Are we embarrassed that our lives are still ruled by our enemies, our sinful nature? Do we shun the one who has the power to free us from our comfortable, compromised lives? Do we wish to tame Jesus? Do we hand him over to our enemies, to the comforts of our sinful nature? And in doing so, do we tame ourselves? And do we try to tame our teenagers? Why is it that some of the most dramatic testimonies come from teenagers and young adults? Are they more willing to fully give themselves up for Christ? Are they more willing to take risks, sacrifice themselves for the cause? Are they more willing to express their emotions and to fight? The author Tom Wright says, Jesus, the Jesus we might discover if we really looked, is larger, more disturbing, more urgent than we, the church, had ever imagined. He goes on to say, We have avoided the huge, world-shaking challenge of Jesus' central claim and achievement. We have reduced the kingdom of God to private piety, the victory of the cross to comfort for the conscience. Piety, conscience and ultimate happiness are important, but not nearly as important as Jesus himself. We can be sure that God will not let us settle down and let us merge with our Philistines. He will never leave us to our sinful devices. We should get to know the real Jesus. You might remember the poster campaign on the left. And probably you'll remember the poster on the, the right. That will look familiar. The two were never put together, actually. On the right, Che Guevara, a Marxist revolutionary. He lived by the sword. He died by the sword. He was a hero to many. He was the poster boy for a thousand student bedroom walls. I have to be careful, actually. I put this slide up at Bourneville, and somebody was sat there with a Che Guevara T-shirt. So <laughs> <laughs> they were very gracious to me afterwards. Che Guevara was not my hero. He was, but he was certainly untamed. See the picture on the left of Jesus, deliberately presented in that way to remind us of Che Guevara, to show the contrast. Jesus, the untamed hero. Meek and mild, yes, but a fighter nonetheless. See what the Bible says about the untamed Jesus. In Colossians, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing him, triumphing over them by the cross. In Corinthians it says, 
Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. And in Daniel, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So what is our fight? Should we go out and pick fights with those outside the church? With those that don't share our beliefs? With the atheists? With the Muslims? With the secular authorities? Absolutely not. They're not our enemies. We should seek to live in harmony with them as far as possible. When the Israelites were in exile in Babylon, against their will, a foreign land, Jeremiah told them, seek the peace and prosperity of your city. Are we to be heroes? Are we to be like Samson? I don't think so. See, the battle has been won already. We were all enemies of God, but Jesus the warrior defeated us. But when he defeated us, he also saved us. When he died on the cross, he gave us life. And he allows us to enjoy the spoils of his victory in a way that the Israelites failed to do in the passage we read today. Unlike Samson, Jesus didn't make his enemies into a pile of dead bodies. Instead, he made us, his enemies, into his body, the church. Ephesians 1 says that God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So Samson's enemies became like the Lord's footstool. Their bodies were his footstool. But in Ephesians 1, it says, the enemies of Christ become the body of Christ. So our fight is to admit our comfortable compromises, our false idols, those things that we seek before God, to be humbled by his battle, his self-sacrifice, to know his victory over the Philistines within us, to rest in him, and not to be a hero, in our weakness to know his strength, to let his victory work through us. And when we do that, we can fight. From a position of absolute security in his love, and in his triumph over our sins, we can then go out and confront evil. We confront evil with good. When we we are hurt, we forgive. Those who oppose us, we can meet with the true grace that only comes from Christ crucified. It won't make us comfortable, but in that way, we can allow him to conquer his enemies and ours by the power of his grace and by nothing else. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that though we were your enemies, you defeated our sin by your grace. Thank you that you not only made us your friends, you made us into your body, the church. Forgive us our sins, all those things that we'd placed before you. Forgive us our comfortable compromises and give us the power by your grace to be a people set apart for you and to proclaim and work out your victory in our lives and in our world. Amen.